When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Live in the Bream with host of Fox News at Night, Shannon Bream. Okay, this week on Live in the Bream, it is his Super Bowl, his favorite time of year. And it's lasting for months. In fact, this lasts for years when people run for president. Uh, we are very excited as we are now in week two of the conventions and really in the home stretch, getting ready for the debates, to have the politics editor for the Fox News channel, the one and only... Christopher Steyerwell. Good to have you, sir. Howdy, ma'am. I, you know, it's funny. I had, I, my joke is always that when you get to campaign season in, in the real deal, uh, I say, you know, it's Easter and I'm the bunny. Uh, I like it. Hopping around. But, I, but the Super Bowl maybe is better. And I guess that would make me John Madden. And I'm for it. I can, I, I can, I can embrace that also. Listen, we need sports. So we're going to use all the sports metaphors we can. That's People right. want some sports in their lives. And there's nothing that's more sporting and sometimes pugilistic than a head-to-head uh, presidential race. We are now there. Um, we're getting through these conventions. Let me first ask you your impressions of the convention so far. As we're talking, we are through with the DNC. We're now on day three of the RNC. Um, what do you make as far as tone, messaging, speakers, what we've seen so far? Well, I think the Democrats had a very successful convention, and they obviously worked hard to reach out to those persuadable suburban voters who uh, helped them so much in 2018. Uh, we heard from uh, former Republicans, current Republicans. We heard about Joe Biden's faith. We heard from Joe Biden, who's a very good spokeswoman for him. All of these things. And the message was pretty clear, was that Joe Biden's no radical and that he is an accessible candidate for those who are concerned about President Trump's leadership. So we didn't know what we were going to see going into the RNC. So far... Can I, one ta- can I stop you really quick just yeah. before we leave the DNC? What do you make of, and you talk about the fact that he is, um, they had a, a situation in which they've got to have voices, like their progressive voices, like Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and others, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders. I mean, he, he's been influential on the platform and what Biden's put together, along with Senator Elizabeth Warren and others. Um, but again, you said the message was to be, he's a moderate guy. He's not a far left guy. But then you have, just within a couple of days, uh, former President Obama saying, listen, when it gets down to it and the goals, uh, it may be different in how they want to get there, but Senator Sanders and Vice President Biden really are not that different. What do you make of that? Well, if you look at what Obama said their goals were, which were like to have good educations for students and have economic growth and to have a just society, those are Donald Trump's goals too. Obama's statement was, the, the Democratic left does not trust Barack Obama, who was, they believe, failed to deliver the transformational change that they wanted. And it's things like that, statements like that, that caused them to mistrust him. Uh, mm-hmm. Because what Obama was saying was like, well, it's just tactics. And I was reminded very much of the split among Republicans when Ted Cruz was leading the shutdown effort. And Mitch McConnell said, well, it's tactics, right? We all Mm -hmm. want the same thing. We all want to defund Obamacare. We're just talking about different tactics. I don't think it will wash for the progressive left 
that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are the same person. But for now, for now, they're willing to be quiet. Democrats fear Donald Trump in a way they did not in 2016. And there is nothing like a healthy dose of fear to Mm -hmm. cause people to behave. And these people are ready to be quiet and let Joe Biden have his way. Yeah, I mean, he snuck up on him. He snuck up on a whole lot of people in 2016. He's not sneaking up on them this time. They're not going to not visit states or campaign in states they think are safe. Um, they're, it's a different playbook, and they're onto it this time. Okay, so RNC, your thoughts? Well, Trump's playbook is different, too. It's interesting you put it that way, because Trump's playbook is different. I didn't know what we were going to hear, and I would imagine the Republicans, who only had about a month to put this together, didn't know what was going to be said not too far ago. But the pitch from Republicans has been not what we got used to with a lot of Trump, which was build the wall, crack down on immigration, that the, you know, talking about the angry mobs and all of the stuff. Those things, culture war stuff has gotten a lot of attention, but through a different prism, we've heard a united message. Tim Scott's speech as a good example, but, you know, I thought back to it when President Trump got in huge trouble for talking about blank hole countries and we don't want immigrants from those blank hole countries. And then in the convention, he stages a naturalization ceremony for mm-hmm. residents of countries from uh, who, who were not, I think he said he, at the time back then, he said he wanted more immigrants from places like Finland. Uh, and those were, there were no Finns up there. You had uh, Sudan and Ghana and places that we do not associate with the kind of immigration Trump was talking about before. We saw the pardoning uh, of an African-American felon. We mm-hmm. saw uh, a big emphasis on sort of a social justice message. I think that the Republicans are reaching out to the, the same voters. When Joe Biden talks about why he's running for president, he always references Trump's remarks about the white supremacists at Charlottesville and how he was, was sympathetic toward them and that that's what made Biden decide to run. And the Democratic National Convention was devoted in substantial part to point it out, pointing out bigotry and their accusations of racism against Trump. We've heard that rebutted. I, th- I think Tim Scott has been the star of the show to this point. He addressed racism and re- he said it was real. He didn't like pretend that racism wasn't a thing. He just said that the Republican vision, the conservative vision for ameliorating racial differences was better than the Democratic one. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you make of, and we had the Kentucky Attorney General, Daniel Cameron, who spoke and got a lot of attention as well, um, after undergoing some, you know, real race-based attacks on him during his uh campaign spoke um he's being described as a rising star that kind of thing but he and tim scott and others have been getting this question about whether republicans are using them as tokens you know emphasizing people of color men and women that they can find to come support the party it's been an interesting attack to watch from the left and it seems to only amplify the accusation back at them that if people that they think should think a certain way don't think a certain way then their thoughts aren't valid well, Dem- Democrats are going to say that, that this is fake and that Republicans aren't interested uh, mm-hmm. in addressing racial problems and that they're only saying this for the convention. And then just as Republicans said, well, Democrats aren't really moderate. They're only putting forward John Kasich and Mike Bloomberg as tokens. But in reality, they're lunatic socialists. So we would remember that when it comes to partisan assessments of themselves and each other, it's going to be, as Joe Biden would say, full of malarkey. Um mm-hmm. 
But we, we love care, conventions. But, but we care about these conventions because this is the message that these parties want to send to the country. They're, they say, this is who we are. These are the big billboards that they put along the highway to say this is who they are. And what Democrats wanted to say is, we are a moderate party and inclusive of those people who might not agree with us all the time, but are concerned about Donald Trump's leadership. And from Republicans, we heard this is an inclusive party. This is a party that's concerned about racial justice. And this is a party that has a place for all kinds of people in it. And I think both have made the argument pretty effectively. How do you think that the riots, the protests, the unrest that we're seeing in the streets will or won't factor into voters' decisions going into the fall? It's a tricky one because it cuts both ways. On the one hand, Republicans feel confident that chaos means uh, white voters in the suburbs will be alarmed and, uh, and, and come back to the Republican Party. On the other hand, a couple of things are true. Number one, when we think about 1968 and how Richard Nixon won in 1968, Richard Nixon won in 1968 because he was not the incumbent and he was promising to calm things down. And that he was promising that this, because remember, there were three candidates running in 1968. You had George Wallace, uh, the segregationist from uh, Alabama, uh, Hubert Humphrey, the sitting vice president, and you had Nixon. And Nixon was saying, I can come in from the outside and calm things down. So Biden, who scores much better on questions of race relation than Trump, has a different pitch, which is Trump is making things worse. I'll make them better. I think it cuts both ways. I think it is true that the Black Lives Matter movement uh, risks delegitimization by uh, outside violent actors. But as we're seeing in Wisconsin now, you have outside actors uh, on the other side, too. So I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a clear line. I think this one cuts both ways. We'll have more Live in the Bream in a moment. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Okay, so let's talk about, you know, the fact that we are now inching towards conversations, getting more detailed about Senate and House races and seats as well. Because um, while, of course, there's rightfully a ton of uh, attention on the presidential race, much of what the president is able or not able to get done has to do with those two houses of Congress. And especially when you think of the Senate, how the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has been jamming through the federal judges, making conservatives very happy. That comes to a grinding halt, even if um, President Trump is reelected. Now, if um, former vice president is elected and Democrats take the Senate, it's going to be turnabout as a fair play on a number of key issues and especially on those judges. Well, look, first, I think we can dispense almost entirely with the idea that if Trump wins re-election, the Republicans are going to hold the Senate of the opposite. Meaning that, you, meaning you that they I mean. will. If, if he, <laughs> if it's a package deal. You're saying if he wins, Republicans are not losing the Senate. Yeah, that, exactly. I got a little tangled up in my, mm-hmm. in my underpants there. Here's the deal. There's one Democratic Senate seat, Alabama, that's gone no matter what. Uh, Doug Jones is not going. Uh, Tommy Tuberville is going to beat him. And I don't think that's in dispute. Martha McSally in Arizona is going to lose. I don't think that's in much dispute. The Republicans, so then you're, and then you're back to even. Uh, Cory Gardner looks like he's sunk in Colorado, so that would be the Republicans minus one. They're still ahead. If Trump wins, you would imagine that Joni Ernst in Iowa, uh, that Susan Collins in Maine, and that Tom Tillis in North Carolina are okay as well. 
that they're probably going to be okay. Georgia's a disaster. They've had a bad primary. They've had issues. Um, but you would imagine that the Republicans would hold both of those seats. If Trump loses, and especially if the polls were predictive, if Trump lost by eight points in, if the election were held today and he lost by eight points, you'd imagine Republicans would lose the majority of those seats. Somebody might be able to hold on, but you wouldn't hold out much hope for Tillis or Collins or Ernst, at least. So it gets, the the Senate will probably follow the presidential, Mm -hmm. which is to say, if Biden wins by a lot, the Democrats will probably take the Senate. But if Trump holds on, the Republicans probably keep it. Okay, let's talk about the House. Uh, flipped in the midterms, it is under Democratic control. Democratic leadership predicting that they will grow that number. Uh, what did the tea leaves say to you? So the, the Republicans have really struggled on the House side. They've struggled to raise money. It's always hard to raise money when you're not forecast to win back the House. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the big money donors and the PACs come in and want to back winners. So they've really struggled on the fundraising and they've struggled a little bit on the candidate recruitment too. The really notable thing on the House, and this is interesting, I think this is something that we can extrapolate out into other races. There have been eight sitting members of the House defeated in primaries. I have never seen a number like that. Mm -hmm. I have never seen a number like that. It's been more Republicans than Democrats, but it's been in both parties mm-hmm. and it's been, it, it, it's, it's been a strong rejection. So first thing we can take away from house races, it's a bad year for incumbents. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, it, it's notable um, for people who are not as inside baseball as we like to be with all of these things. It's been interesting to watch the progressive wing of the democratic party take out so many of their incumbents successfully. And these are longtime people like Congressman Elliot Engel, but other, you know, upstarts who are, you know, when it happens on both sides, when extremes to the left or right win the primary, then the party's always worried about how they're going to fare in the general. But it's been an interesting primary season to watch across the board. Yeah, I mean, you everything from uh, knocking off somebody like Elliot Engel to having a QAnon curious uh, candidate uh, unseating Scott Tipton in Colorado on the Republican side. There's been a lot of weird, a lot of weird beardness out there uh, on that side. But for the House in general, the forecast now would say Democrats are very likely to hold the House. What Republicans would want to do if Trump wins that some of the seats that the Democrats won in places like Southern California, like New Jersey and elsewhere, where they're really in. They're in districts Trump won in 2016, that what the Republicans want to do is grind down that Democratic advantage, grind down the Democratic majority so that it ceases to be useful. Because remember, you're always going to have a no matter who's in charge, you're always going to have a handful of uh, lawmakers from swing districts who are going to say, well, you know, I'm with you, but I can't be with you on this. And once you get inside that margin where those kinds of lawmakers are in control, it really cuts into things. So that's what Republicans' aim would mostly be, would be win back some of those districts and grind down the Democratic majority a little bit so that it's not as useful. Okay. Uh, We always, you know, have people who love us or hate us when we talk about polls, but I want to talk about one uh, set that's getting a lot of attention over the last 24 hours or so. Some of these key battleground states looking at where the Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump spread stood at the same time four years ago, as it does now with a much tighter, although albeit leads um, for the former Vice President Biden versus President Trump this time around. Um, people who are hopeful for the reelection of the president say that's a good sign. But how do you feel about these polls and really any polls as we go into 2016 and whether 
there is this sort of, if I support President Trump, I'm not going to talk to pollsters, I'm not going to tell the truth. Is that overblown, this idea of a silent majority or not? Yes, it is. It is. It, it's not a thing. And okay. we know it. It's there. Uh, the idea that Trump supporters are shy is, <laughs> uh, does, not, does not comport with the reality that we see every day. Now, are there undecided voters or people who say now that they are undecided who ultimately are going to vote for Donald Trump? Yes. And are there a lot of them? Sure. Might it make the difference in some of these swing states? Quite certainly. But as we saw in 2016 and as we see again here, the polls are, in 2016, missed on the state level for a pretty, what is now obvious reason. Getting white people with college degrees, white people with college degrees are the easiest people to get to respond to a poll. Uh, yes, I'll take your poll. Okay, do tell. Um, and it, it's harder to get people to respond to a poll who are uh, working class or poor voters are hard to do. So these state polls in places like Wisconsin and elsewhere undercounted mm -hmm. the number of these folks because the way a poll works, and I want to bore everybody, but here's the way a poll works. We don't control for the number of Republicans or Democrats. What we control for are how many white folks, how many black folks, how many women, how many men. And we make those assumptions based on what we think the electorate's going to look like based on what happened last time and based on what's happened in the census. And then we make an estimate. What pollsters did wrong in 2016, and I, I hate to harp on Wisconsin, but it was the most obvious example, was that they, there were not enough white voters without college degrees which happened to be Donald Trump's strongest suit. So the polls missed in that way. And to be fair, Trump closed late. His performance, and that's what Republicans are hoping for again, he closed the gap late in those states. A lot of undecided voters, those same undecided voters we're talking about, flooded in for Trump at the end. I got to see some tracking polls that were done for a candidate after the fact, and Trump closed the gap three or four points right at the end mm -hmm. and in Wisconsin. So he closed late because voters were like, yeah, I'll take a chance on this guy. This time, pollsters are doing a better job. They're probably even overcorrecting for those white working class voters, uh, making sure that the num their numbers are higher in the sample. And the other thing is this. We, in 2016, there were a lot of voters who weren't sure because they didn't like either of their choices. And in the end, Trump won a lot of them who said, what the heck, I'll take a chance on this guy. We are in a totally different space this time. Everybody has an opinion about Donald Trump and they know what they think about him. And that's good in the sense that he has more reliable support, but it also means that there are fewer of these, what do you got to lose, take a chance voters. So they're fighting over a smaller space. All right, and lastly, I wanna ask you, what do you think we'll know on election night? Because the growing percentage of people do vote absentee and by mail, and that's a whole other debate um, about the differences and what it means and you know, some of the um, discussion about postal service and all that. We're not going to go there. I just want to know what you think about election night. Will we know about the Senate and House? Will we know about the White House? Or is this going to be 2000 all over again? Oh, we should be so lucky to have it in one state. I, my God. <laughs> You're right. That was Florida. If we could just have your home state be the only <laughs> problem this time, that would be fine. No, I'm, I'm, I'm only kind of kidding. Here's the thing. If you have a big win, it won't matter right? We'll know on election night. So if we, let's say this, if we call Florida for Biden early in the evening, or we call uh, North Carolina for Biden early in the evening, 
you can be pretty confident, or Ohio, you can be pretty confident the way it's going. Um, conversely, if we call New Hampshire for Trump and Florida for Trump, if, if, you, if you start to see it coming in the other way in the early returns, then yes, there'll be weeks of ballot counting to figure out different house races and all that stuff, but we'll be able to make a call and say, this is the way it's going. Um, on the other hand, 60% of all ballots in 2018 were cast by mail. That number will be substantially higher this time. You could see three quarters of all ballots cast by mail. That could mean that it will take two weeks before everything gets sorted out and everything mm -hmm. gets counted out. And I promise you, my friend, that when you and I are doing our election razzle-dazzle, uh, the decision desk is equipped with extra beef jerky yes. for, for a long stay. We'll have lots of candy and beef jerky for an extended stay because we're building our approach around the idea that it won't be decisive. I, mm -hmm. I'd love it if it was decisive. I'd love it if it was a, a quick end and we could say we've got it. We've got a clear win because I think it would be good for everybody mm -hmm. to not have this drag out and be a lot of partisan acrimony. But we're, we're preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. Here's my question, though. Is the beef jerky going to be bacon flavored, which, by the way, Mr. Bream bought some of that? Might have been me. But we bought some. We purchased some beef jerky that was bacon flavored a few weeks back. And he opens a bag and he's like, I don't understand. I think all beef jerky is essentially bacon. I don't understand this concept. But How can, it was so it delicious. Was, so it was beef jerky that was made to taste like pork? <laughs> I guess. That's, that's like... <laughs> I, I'm not Jewish, but I'm I'm pretty certain that's not kosher. I don't think you can do that. Well, listen, um, we, we buy this beef jerky that comes in all different. It's tuna. There is pork. There is beef. There, I mean, we they're all different flavors now. And I think if you buy bacon-flavored jerky, that's just bacon, right? I mean, well, it's just pork. It's bacon. If, if it's, if it's, so there is bacon jerky. And the difference is, do you dry it out to the point that it is shelf stable. I think th I think mm -hmm. that's what it is. But mm -hmm. I also know that Sheldon throws down some pretty mean beef jerky in his own right. I think he or does. Deer he, jerky. he makes he does venison jerky every year. Let me know, podcasters, uh, listeners, if you would like some. Um, just let me know on Twitter, and we'll we'll see about getting some of the famous Bream venison uh, jerky off the door. I'm here. I'm here to tell you, it's good. It's All real. right. I'll make sure you get some this year. Chris mm -hmm. Steyerwalt, thank you so much for lending us your expertise. I love your insights, and you always know way more than I do about whatever's happening in the world of politics. So thank you for dropping in on Living the My Brain. friend, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Love to your fam. You too. See you soon. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.